Hi, and welcome to our second podcast on mass violence planning. My name is Diane Alexander, and I'm a senior manager in victim services at ICF. And I currently focus my work on managing support to communities that have experienced a mass violence incident and helping those communities plan for how they will respond to a mass violence incident. I'm joined again by Tara Hughes. Tara is a subject matter expert in mass violence response, working directly with victims and families to ensure comprehensive care. She's the project director of the Improving Community Preparedness to Assist Victims of Mass Violence and Domestic Terrorism Training and Technical Assistance Project, and oversees work with communities to plan for mass violence response. Tara and I are joined by Karina Sole Brito. Karina wears two hats at ICF. She's the Director of Public Health Preparedness, and she's the Deputy Director at Asper Tracy. She has a master's in criminology and has been working with first responders, emergency managers, and healthcare workers for 30 years. In our first podcast, we talked about the definition of mass violence, how planning for a mass violence incident is different than other types of emergency planning the importance of good, comprehensive planning that must happen before an incident, and we touched on the challenges of not planning. We also talked about how when communities don't have a plan in place, services to victims are delayed or even denied. Today we'll talk about what happens when you don't plan for a mass violence incident and what makes a good plan. Tara, why don't you start us off? Thanks, Diane. Um, Sure, we ended last podcast um, talking very briefly about the Boston Marathon bombing response. And one of the things that we found in that response was that tactically, operationally, they had lots and lots of plans in Boston and the surrounding areas. Uh, They have plans for every marathon that happens. They have plans for every football game that happens, every New Year's Eve concert and, and set of fireworks that happens. And all of those plans talked about tactical operations. What they didn't talk about was victim services. And so what happened in those moments when um, the victim services people arrived was um, a lot of resistance from people within the the organization as it was functioning tactically um, to letting victim services do what we needed to do. And it really took quite some time for the people who knew what needed to happen from a victim services perspective um, to actually get into the right rooms to be talking to the right people. So specifically what happened was um, I was with the Red Cross in that, that response and I had the Department of Health who was in charge from a city perspective, a Boston city perspective, um, calling me and asking me for um, lists of names of providers who might be able to uh, set up counseling with families. And that was what they they envisioned as a good plan and as what was needed. Um, And what we know is needed is not that at all, that actually counseling services don't generally kick in in the typical sense of counseling for weeks and weeks and weeks, and that that is appropriate. It takes people a long time to get to the point where they are able to navigate actual counseling sessions. But what's needed is victim services in that moment 
how do we support people as they get information, information about their loved ones, whether their loved ones are deceased or living, whether they're in the hospital, whether they don't know where they are, how do they get that information? How do we support them while they get that information? What other services are needed? We had people in the Boston Marathon running the marathon who were from other countries, from across our country. And um, what they need in that moment um, is not necessarily typical traditional counseling, but what they need is the ability, if they have um, the physical ability to get on an airplane and to fly home. And some of those people didn't have access to their IDs or those kinds of things. So generally what happened and what got this moving in the right direction really was the fact that most of the people who were coming in from a victim services perspective, so the FBI has victim specialists, the local MOVA, uh, Massachusetts Office for Victim Assistance, has victim advocates. The Attorney General's office is where victim compensation sits in Massachusetts, so they had advocates who needed to get in. Most of those people, other than the specific Massachusetts people, had worked together very recently at Sandy Hook Elementary School and the response that happened after that shooting. So the FBI, the Red Cross, the uniformed public health folks, um, the uh, there were some others from an, an, a national perspective who had just done all of that together. And as we all landed in Boston, we all started talking to each other and bringing that information to the table to say, here's what we need, here's what we need to do. Um, and we knew what we needed to do. Uh, many of us not only had just done Sandy Hook together, but had done this multiple times prior to that. So we were able to get into contact with the, the Massachusetts Office for victim assistance, the attorney general's folks, and bring a meeting together. Um, that meeting morphed into really a day-long um, journey to try to get the city um, to start to really work with the victims the way that they needed to be worked with, um, bringing them to one place where their needs would get met, um, giving them support in the hospitals if they were there, helping them with lodging or transportation or those kinds of things. So what we found was having a group of people who knew each other, who had done this work together, who had talked through some of the issues at Sandy Hook, um, were able to then bring that to the attention of the city and be able to talk with them, get in a room with them and really, really talk with them about what was needed and how do we move forward. So that meeting um, where we all got in the same room happened on Wednesday at 11 a.m. The uh, bombings happened on Monday afternoon around 2.15 or somewhere in that range. Um, so it took a long time to get there. We eventually get there, we got there, we eventually had really good services for the people who were identified as victims. But there was a two-day gap, really, where there were a lot of things that fell through the, the, um, the boards. And we, we didn't, we don't know what, what we're still missing today. Um, so thinking about planning, yes, tactically, that was there um, and there were good plans in place and lots of relationships and people were different organizations working with each other 
what wasn't there was the fact that they they needed to realize that the victim services pieces had to be activated as well. So um, thinking about that moving forward and planning, um, now there is a much more robust victim services component to the plans, even for the traditional everyday things. The Boston Marathon just happened last week, and uh, those plans now have victim care components in the plans. Um, so luckily, Boston has learned from, from those lessons and has moved their their plan much forward. Um, but we're really looking at ways to make sure that relationships happen and that people know what the very specific things that need to be activated during a criminal event are activated. Um, and when there are living people who were impacted who um, need services as opposed to just fatality management. Back to you, Diane. Eric, can I ask you a follow-up question? You mentioned both victim assistance and compensation. Can you give the listeners just a little bit of a shorthand of what those mean and why they're important in the planning process? Absolutely. Um, so uh, Victoria did this in the last one, but I'll give a very brief uh, follow-up to what she did for those just listening to this one. So victim assistance is really an overarching uh, program that exists in states to assist victims of crime, any crime, to get the services that are needed um, for them. And those services can be immediate services. So they can be uh, mental health support. They can be long-term mental health counseling. They can be physical, um, medical support, um, all of those kinds of things. But that victim assistance, those advocates will walk next to people throughout their entire journey of this, um, this crime and their response to the crime um, and get their needs met. Um, and victim advocates who work through victim assistance at the state level um, will help navigate them to the, the appropriate services. Victim compensation is the financial compensation that covers a variety of different things depending on the state. It um, covers a variety of different aspects of what a crime victim has to deal with medical uh, bills, mental health bills, um, rehab, um, a physical rehab, um, any of those kinds of things can be covered by victim compensation. It is very state-based, and so each state has a different set of things that are covered by that. Um, but in general, that's what victim assistance and victim compensation are. They both kick in when there is a crime. Thanks, Tara. And the sure. one thing I would add about compensation is we see in a lot of communities GoFundMe pages set up, right, or just donations, you know, a fund set up and donations. And it's really critical to know that um, crime victim, what crime victim compensation will cover so that if you have people wanting to donate to, say, cover funeral expenses, there's already a mechanism available in your community, in your state, to have funerals um, covered by state uh, crime victim compensation. So put those donations to other uh, types of needs that a victim might have um, that wouldn't be covered by crime victim compensation. So it's just being smart with how you're looking at funding the needs of, of the, the victims, the direct needs. Absolutely, I would say that, and planning that ahead of time, knowing that there are people who know what gets covered by official mm -hmm. funds, and um, creating and developing um, 
communication that already takes that into account. You know, if we know that victim compensation is going to cover funeral expenses, we know we can direct people to um, use different wording in their funds or those kinds of things. So pre-planning is where that can all be set up ahead of time. Exactly. Karina, do you want to jump in and share your perspectives? Sure, thank you. I was going to take it back a little bit earlier to in the earlier phase of the response and say from an emergency response and hospital incident management perspective, even though we have incorporated a bunch of lessons that we've learned since the Boston Marathon incident, we still encountered some similar challenges after the Las Vegas shooting and I wanted to highlight some of that too. Um, victims self-reported to eight different hospitals and many of them were dropped off by strangers and most of them had not gone through any type of traditional on-scene triage. In fact, in one hospital only, patients arrived via 24 EMS transports, but 188 private vehicle transports. Some came without identification, and this really slows down the treatment and notification process. So it's really important for hospitals to ensure an adequate supply of things like paper triage tags or paper charts just to keep the process moving after a mass casualty incident. And the other thing that I would say with that with hospitals um, is really looking at the fact that hospitals are part of the picture and coroners and medical examiners are part of the picture and victims who are not um, injured to go to the hospital um, still need to be accounted for. And so really looking at how do we pull all of that information together, <coughs> excuse me, pulling all of that information together allows a community to get a comprehensive list of victims and helps people to be reconnected with their loved ones. Um, and, and sometimes that is um, a family finding out that, that there was a death, but sometimes it is a family finding out that someone's in a hospital, doesn't have their ID, and their name isn't on a, a registry in that hospital right now because maybe they have a concussion and they, they don't remember their name in that moment. Um, in Las Vegas, there were, my understanding is that there were nine people who were treated and released and they never knew their names or they never recorded their names. So there's all all sorts of different um, things that happen that pre-planning, pulling all of those people together um, and talking beforehand to facilitate comprehensive lists of people that they are treating and um, identifying all of those people coming in in very non-traditional ways into hospital settings. Um, the other thing that we've seen, and, and Karina, I think you can talk more about this, but people went to things like urgent care because they that was the closest thing they came to <laughs> and they weren't they didn't know where the hospital was they were maybe from out of town but they found an urgent care so they knocked on that door and they were treated there first and maybe transferred to a hospital and maybe just treated and released absolutely and the more that more things like this happen the more important it is to include all types of healthcare providers into emergency management planning but particularly hospitals right because the hospital family information centers are obviously in the hospital and keeping um, these folks included in every type of planning exercise, planning and exercise that you hold can ensure a smoother transition to a community family assistance center. 
Absolutely. And I think that the, um, you know, one of the things that that we've talked about in a number of ways in both of these podcasts is scope and scale and that traditional um, protocols, um, standard operating procedures work for a while, but often don't work when the scope and the scale gets to be so big that you have a hundred and I'm sorry, I forget the number you just said, 120 um, non-traditional vehicles bringing people into a hospital setting um, that that we don't do that in a normal everyday every day in an emergency room or if you do it's one person who's who's bringing one person in in a vehicle um and so thinking about the challenges of scope and scale and that that is why additional planning is needed it's not for the smaller things where standard operating procedures will kick in and and work really well. Um, hospitals have those, medical examiners have those, coroners have those. It's when it gets to be really, really large. And when each of those has a piece. Um, so if we go back to Las Vegas, um, the medical examiner's piece of that was the, um, I'm sorry, he's a coroner. The coroner's piece of that was um, the 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 management of the remains and talking with families and identifying those remains and giving them their death certificates and all of that kind of stuff and that all fit within his lane um, and he did that according to his standard operating procedures what wasn't taken into account at that by that process was the fact that there were lots of people who who ran away from that site who were not injured didn't end up in the hospital did not end up dead but were very much impacted by that mass violence event and that a response needs to take into account all of those components and not just the the ones that any given entity does with their standard operating procedures. Great, great information. Before we move on to kind of elements of good planning, any other final thoughts from either of you about the challenges with planning and what, what you've seen when it when a plan isn't in place? So I think uh, one other thing that I would say is that one of the, um, again, it goes back to what I was just saying, sort of that's a multi-pronged need to account for people that includes those who are involved, those who are injured, those who are missing, and those who are deceased. Um, and, and that there needs to be at the, the early stages of any given response, there needs to be a working definition of who will be considered a victim of the the incident. And that's going to need to happen across the board for any incident that's out there. Uh, and what, what happens with poor or no planning is that those conversations happen between people who really don't talk to each other all that often about something that is this large. Um, so generally, it's the lead law enforcement agency, the eventual prosecutor, if there's a live perpetrator, and hopefully the victim services people all coming together to really look at who was impacted by this and how are we going to identify, define that, because that will immediately dictate who gets access to services. So when you don't have a good process or even have the people know each other ahead of time who are going to need to come together and make that decision, that becomes an even more challenging decision than it would have been 
otherwise. Yes, I completely agree. And I would say that defining the who will be the actual incident commander is super important too, even before you get to the phase where you're providing victim services. So, so important to get to know your, your, your entire incident command team from the hospital perspective and the community law enforcement first responder perspective before an incident takes place. Great, great information. Thank you, uh, both of you. So let's turn our attention to uh, the elements of good planning. Uh, would the two of you, from your experience, um, like to talk about what are the components that you have seen in good planning? So I'm going to jump on what Karina just said in terms of knowing whose job it is to do what and having those conversations ahead of time. Um, what we have seen is a plan that is socialized among the people who will be uh, carrying out the plan is really important. And that socialization happens by uh, the planning process. You know, the planning process is not um, a one size fit all for every community. And that's why it can be challenging. Um, so a good plan as it is being developed allows for people to sit down in the same room and talk to each other and maybe talk about some negative things that happened in the past um, related to other large incidents, uh, maybe some really good things that have happened in the past and get to the point where it, they they jointly decide here's what's going to happen moving forward. So those discussions and the people understanding who's going to do what and how it's all going to fit together is actually, I think, one of the, the biggest benefits of planning. And the mark of a good plan is that it is community specific. So Karina, how about you? I love that you said it, that it's community specific because we totally agree from, you know, our perspective at Asper Tracy. I mean, you can you can have a plan, you can practice a plan, but until, you know, you bring in the, the players from your local hospitals and your local emergency management services to get to know each other and to practice a plan together, it, it's really just a piece of paper or a binder. Um, something else that we've heard a lot of in the past is it's important, it's great to plan, it's great to exercise, but you really need to take that to the next level and plan for something you think would never happen because that might happen and then something else you never thought would ever happen will happen afterwards. I know it sounds dramatic, but you know, add injects that you you really could never imagine because at this point, you know, these are things that may actually be your reality. No, I love that. I love the idea of planning for something that that you don't think will ever happen. One of the things that we have found as we work with communities in the planning process is that when we help them to plan for sort of those outlier things that maybe have happened in other communities, um, but they seem really dramatic or they seem really out of the norm, when we have them, them really think about those, then when they talk about the things that more generally do happen, they use that information that they've learned from sort of that dramatic thing, and they're able to generalize that to uh, the, the bigger plan or the bigger needs that may happen more commonly. So I love that. Um, the other thing that I think is really important um, and Karina, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, but the idea that of the emotionality of a mass violence event really is 
in in many ways outside the norm that we deal with yes if any event any incident that happens or illness that happens impacts a family or impacts an individual and there's a lot of emotionality around that but what we see in these mass violence event is that emotionality not only gets bigger and expanded to the community that people are living in but often to the community of the world you know depending on the um the who is impacted you know if you have a a synagogue that is it, there's a shooting in a synagogue that impacts the jewish community worldwide really um sandy hook elementary school there were 20 children um ages six and seven who died and that impacted the community of the world, like the large community of the world was was really impacted by that. So emotionally, there's and you can't really plan for specific emotions, but you can plan for the fact that there will be a lot of emotion um, and that some of that emotion may may be devoted to what was the intention of this. and who what what's the why behind this why did this happen um what made this person I, after the gilroy garlic shooting a few summers ago i was sitting in a meeting and it was very important to some of the victim families who were sitting in the meeting to find out what made the person who did this do this and that was not something that we could necessarily answer, but that intentionality, there had to be an intent or there had to be something that created this, the environment that created this person, um, that increased the emotionality of everything. And it was harder for people even to hear about services and process the fact that the services were going to be available to them because they had this emotionality that kept getting in the way. Um, so I would love to hear about how you think that impacts hospitals, both from the provider perspective and the, the patient and family perspective. I mean, you know, it's so hard to reconcile the type of things that other humans can do to each other, right? It's, it's sometimes it's impossible. So it makes sense that people want to know the why, but sometimes you just never will. Um, I think it's really important to incorporate all of this into your planning and to know that you're going to have upwards of hundreds sometimes of family members or another loved ones coming to your hospital looking for their people and needing support. And maybe they don't have their IDs or they don't have food or water because they came from the same event. Um, and some of these may be children or other loved ones of your healthcare providers because, again, like you said, these plans are community specific. Well, these events are community specific as well. So, you know, a lot of your responders may actually have friends, family members, et cetera, who work in hospitals and vice versa. So it's really important to consider these things when you're planning for mass casualty incidents. It's no different than planning for a wildfire because these are things that affect your communities. But like you said, they affect the world as well. So thank you, social media, you know, and traditional media who jump on it and just share all these images repeatedly over and over again. You know, it's so important to have victim services staff, patients, healthcare workers, everyone supported by behavioral health, mental health um, professionals that can come to the hospital that are usually in the hospital who work in the hospital and provide some sort of on-site crisis debriefing and support. You know, what you provide to 
humans is pretty much the same, no matter their role in a response. They're a survivor, they're a loved one, they're a healthcare provider. It's just specific, it's just supportive feeling, supportive food, supportive care. It's basic needs that can be planned ahead and um, carried out in a hospital-based family assistance center. Absolutely. And one of the things I would jump on, I would add to that is um, that we know that um, hospitals ac across the board, really, after events like this, lose staff. You know, they, that people who sit in an emergency room for hours and hours and hours and see um, the the physical and emotional ramifications of, of this, we see them um, leave their jobs. Um, we have a colleague who went to Las Vegas uh, several weeks, several months or years, I'm not sure if Diane can fill that in, um, went to Las Vegas and was having her nails done and found out that it was someone who had been an emergency room uh, provider. She had been a nurse and she walked away from nursing after that because of the emotional toll. Yeah, I would I would piggyback on that and say it's it's helpful. While it's very helpful to provide the debriefing in the moment, in the heat of the moment, you know, during the response and maybe sometime afterwards, it's critically important to maintain that throughout the long term as well for healthcare providers in particular, as well as survivors. And just because, as we all know, first responders are sort of trained to respond and not really think about what they're doing from an emotional standpoint, so it all comes out later. So, you know, at, in, at this point in time, we can't afford to lose any more healthcare workers to stress. So it's really important to have some really good, solid programs set in stone in your hospital and other healthcare facility. And that makes me think of another component that, um, that hospitals have to think about. First responders across the board think about, but hospitals have to think about not just the incident that they're hearing about on a radio that, and people are being sent their way, but they then have to think about um, a secondary um, explosion or a secondary incident. So do you want to talk a little bit about that in terms of the how challenging that is, both from a response perspective, but what you were just talking about in terms of the, the people who have to work under those conditions? Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. It's so it's so hard to say that hospitals are targets, right? You never really want to think of them that way. But it's really important for hospitals to plan for secondary incidents and to plan to be attacked in a similar fashion. Um, and it's also really important to understand that the response and the first responders are going to be overwhelmed. I mean, I think it's easy for me to say, but like if you look at the numbers, for example, in Las Vegas, the incident scene expanded from 17 and a half acres to four square miles, give or take, because as people ran and called 911, uh, first responders had to really figure out whether there was one shooter, multiple shooters, where were the locations, because the calls were coming in from all over the place as people evacuated the scene. So that's something that's really important and you will have some scope creep um, affecting your hospital, your emergency department as well. There are also other ways that hospitals can plan to um, kind of harden their targets by, you know, working with their emergency room security and things like that. But, you know, again, your your job is to keep your doors open and serve victims and patients and their loved ones. So it's, it's really a, a thin line there. Absolutely. Diane, back to you. 
I was just going to say, um, Karina and, and Tara, going back to the um, the uh, anecdote that you shared, Tara, about one of our colleagues going and um, having her nails done by somebody who was an emergency room nurse. She was an emergency room nurse in, I think, the trauma one uh, hospital there, the highest level of trauma. And they had trained, you know, they had done a lot of training. They had a lot of plans and everything. But I think what is important from her experience is even with all that training and all that planning, you do need to think about, as Karina mentioned, you know, you're doing the debriefings and everything in in the immediate aftermath, but really being able to look at the long-term services you offer to your, your first responders, your employers, and being able to really set something up that keeps them in their profession, right? Their chosen profession, profession whether that's hospitals or first responders or, or, you know, anybody else in those types of professions. We, we want them and all their experience to stay in their, their roles. Absolutely. And I think that the, um, you know, we know from lots of these experiences that um, first responders also leave in droves sometimes. You know, you look mm-hmm. at 9-11 and the um, FDNY um, had almost within five years, I believe, 50 percent or some number around there of their um, their firefighters had either switched departments and gone somewhere else or dropped out of being a firefighter in general. Um, and so, as Diane said, you know, you, you're not only are you losing those people, but you're losing that experience and you're having to start over from the beginning and train. So thinking about pl- from a planning perspective, what can you do to really have a robust um response for your responders, whether that's hospital first responders, even the people who work in the the sites that get stood up just for mass violence, the uh, Family and, and Friends Notification Center and the Family Assistance Center, those are really tough jobs to have and to um, to, to have a that the awareness that you need something more robust than the norm is really important. And I think we go back to those relationships and the conversations that you have ahead of time um, that, you know, your um, fire battalion chiefs can say, we're good on a normal everyday basis, but we may need to reach out to X group of mental health providers or spiritual care providers to assist their chaplains or those kinds of things. So giving communities the ability ahead of time to think about how do we really truly care for the people who stepped up and cared for the people impacted by this um, is huge. It's huge. I always consider that one of the gifts of this work is that that we get to allow people um, to see that they may need something more and give them the space to create it. Whether they like our gift or not is is always another question, but but in general, it's it's an opportunity that really allows them to figure out how do we care for our own in the long run and do it effectively. Right. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. I I think it's so important to continue working to remove the stigma associated with admitting that you need some help to get through a difficult situation. 
I mean, I think in, in the first responder world, we've made some progress, but we have a ways to go, obviously. Um, but I do believe that, you know, there are things you can do to make yourself more resilient. And there are plenty of tools out there for first responders, healthcare workers, and victim services providers that we just need to do a better job socializing. And, and I'll put a plug in for when you're looking at setting up those services for the first responders is to keep in mind their families and making sure that their family members have access to services and support as well. I wish uh, I could high five you through this microphone <laughs> here. I completely agree. I was agree. thinking the same thing. Virtual <laughs> high five. Yes. Yeah. Um, so let's switch gears just a little bit and start looking at some of the more unique challenges in planning and, and response. Um, and Tara, I think you you want to kick us off with uh, using your public information officers. Sure. So um, public information officers are um, <laughs> are a, a goldmine of information and protocols and abilities, um, and we really, really need to to be using those. One of the things that we have unfortunately seen. Um, over and over and over again after these events is that there are liability issues that come up and that with those liability issues, um, many organizations get uh, sued. And it is one of the unique challenges that a lawsuit can happen anytime, but with a mass violence incident, often they are very quick and they are very extensive and sometimes they're numerous as well. So, so thinking about who can get, who can get sued and how do we protect against um, giving, uh, you know, sort of setting things up so that there's, there's more of that opportunity. Um, we have seen, and Diane can help me with this, but we have seen schools, universities, police departments, fire departments, um, uh, victim service agencies, nonprofits, all of them get sued after effect, uh, one of these incidents. So that really points in many ways to the fact that if you are in one of those situations, one of those organizations, that that having your PIO who is trained to stand in front of people, who is trained to give or not give information, um, and is also planning what they are and are not going to say before they go out there, that the use of a public information officer in a coordinated way with other organizations and, and having single messaging, having that include some, some ideas of, of what people might be experiencing and ways to take care of yourself and all of that kind of stuff, that that really can not protect against law, lawsuits, but it can shield some, um, some organizations from sort of the bigger things that we've seen happen. Um, what we know is that that the more that is said by government officials um, and uh, sort of leaders in those moments, um, every word of that gets reviewed thousands and thousands of times by people and can become a liability. So definitely think about using your um, public information officers. And no doubt that it's a challenge, right? Because a, a leader, you know, uh, an elected official, you know, the chief of police, a sheriff, you know, they will probably naturally feel like, okay, I've got to be out there in front delivering a message to the public, right? The media, the victims and everything. And what 
is, uh, I think, challenging with that is that, no offense to any of them, but they're not necessarily disciplined public information officers in the way that PIOs are. So uh, you kind of you kind of want them to step aside, maybe introduce the PIO. Um, so if they do need to. Um, you know, have a visible presence at any sort of briefing, but then step aside and let a PIO provide that um, that briefing to the the media and the community, especially. Um, one of the things to to touch on, Tara, I think, is the idea of institutional victims. Um, we know in the the work that we do, a lot of uh, entities, businesses, um, schools, things like that, want to be able to to do the right thing, right, and and when something has happened, and, and in their mind, that may be, well, we want to be able to set up the services that, you know, are going to be needed for the, the victims and survivors. And what we we know is that um, they're, they're essentially what we call the institutional victim. And so they are not usually the best position to be providing services. There may be those lawsuits that you've mentioned, uh, but there may also be um, you know, feelings uh, about the the organization um, where the incident happened. And they also have their own trauma to um, tend to as the institution um, where the incident occurred. So we always try and look for um, another kind of community entity that's not connected directly to the incident to be able to set up services. I think that another component of that is the idea that the entity may be, you know, maybe a business and the the shooting or the incident may have happened on on the business property. Um, it may be um, an an institution, a police department, or something like that 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 responded. And there are um, quite a mix of, of emotions that generally tend to happen around the location of the incident and the response to that incident. So you have, um, you know, a school where families are known in schools and school administrations um, pride themselves on taking care of their people. Um, taking care of their students and their families. And what we find is that they may very desperately want to do that, and families may be very angry because of things that happen during that response or policies that the school has. So there may be this anger that families and students can't get over. And what we find is rather than figuring out how to manage that emotion and going to get services, if they happen to be in the school or if the school is facilitating them, victims tend to not take advantage of services. They will go elsewhere to try to find their own services. And we know that that's really, really challenging. And um, the goal when we set up these responses is that they don't, people don't have to do that. So one of the ways that we really encourage people is to to make sure that the where the incident happened is not where we're asking people to go for services because that is something that is incredibly challenging and again people will forego services and just not get them rather than go to that place where they feel that anger great point 
So let's um, continue moving forward. Uh, can we talk a little bit about uh, how a mass violence event will impact the vulnerable people in a community? Sure. Um, it will impact the most vulnerable. Um, it always will. <laughs> um, and the um, for and, and in a variety of different uh, ways and capacities, but you're really looking at people maybe who are um, differently abled, you know, maybe have um, mobility issues or hearing issues, sight issues, um, those kinds of things. And any of these uh, um, inc um, incidents of mass violence are going to impact people um, who fit in those categories more because it's in general, more challenging to get services across the board. Um, and so now very quickly, you're setting up community support systems that need to not only um, have interpreters there and have um, the ability to work with people who now have different family configurations and, and um, different cultures, people eating different things, all of those things need to be thought about very quickly and very um, uh, compassionately and empathetically. And, and you need to think about how are we managing the vulnerability of, of the people um, who are here. Um, we, um, in many of the instances that we've had, have had undocumented folks who are impacted. We have had um, folks whose families are in foreign countries and they don't have support systems here. So understanding that mass violence is going to impact people and going to require a whole set of um, interventions that are much more broad than the normal things that happen in a community um, and that you're we're going to need to in the response figure out how to manage all of that um, and sometimes that means um, that if you have a pocket of undocumented folks they're very unlikely to come into a service center like a family assistance center so it becomes important to figure out how to identify these pockets of vulnerable people who are not accessing services and figure out how do we package these services in a way that one we can move them out there but two they're accepted by all of these populations. Um, we may need to get consulates involved. Um, we may need to get, as I said, interpreters involved. Um, we may need to make sure that there are all sorts of functional and access needs um, that we're meeting when we're setting up the facilities that we have um, for things that existed prior to this, but also are new access and functional needs. Um, I, when we were in um, Orlando for the pulse response, we um, walked, I, when I walked in and they had set up the Family Assistance Center, they had tables, many tables that um, were put there expecting lots of families to come in and there were lots of chairs and there was no space between the tables for a wheelchair. So I said, we need to get rid of probably, I don't know, six to eight of these tables and make sure that wheelchairs can, can effectively move in and amongst these tables and got a little pushback at the beginning. Well, but we want enough tables for all of the families. And I said, Yes, and what you're going to have right now is a lot of families who have people who are 
just released from the hospital in wheelchairs, maybe because they have leg injuries, um, back injuries, those kinds of things, but may just not have the strength to stand up and they're not going to be able to come in. So they're going to be at the door and they're not going to be able to navigate this. So even thinking at that level, when you think about planning, having a plan to think about how do we how do we manage that? <laughs> you know, how do we how do we uh, make sure that that people who are newly um, dealing with functional and access needs can do it with the least amount of challenge as possible? And I think one of the important points to take it back to the need for planning is that when a group is sitting down to plan their mass violence response, um, they need to be looking at, okay, what's the makeup of our community? Because in many communities, those underserved um, populations may not be coming to their the forefront of their mind as they're planning. And so they really need to have somebody at the table saying, but wait, what about, you know, this community or this population? Uh, and so that you're not kind of scrambling at the last minute when an incident affects somebody um, from one of those underserved um, communities. Excellent point. Absolutely. Um, and those uh, community surveys are done typically by a number of different organizations in a community. Emergency management do it all the time, um, as well as hospital systems, healthcare systems, um, schools even do it. So the information is out there. You just need to have the right people at the table and you need to have the conversation ahead of time. So I'm, uh, unless we have any other, uh, any other thoughts on this particular point, I was gonna move us to personal preparedness. So Tara, Karina, are we ready to move on or do you have any last thoughts on this past section? Okay, so one of the things we've learned over time is that people react to large stressors and recover better if they have a personal preparedness plan. Uh, I'd like to uh, have Tara and Karina come back in here and talk a little bit about how do you personally prepare for this type of an incident uh, and your response to it. So I think on a personal level, um, I'll start there and then um, I think we'll both talk about sort of the personal professional level. Um, but on a personal level, being able to respond as a responder to any of these or really even manage what's happening in your community is easier if you have some basic personal preparedness stuff in, um, in place. And there are uh, two major categories that I always think of when I think about this. One is communications. So thinking about if the norm of my communications system, like how do I how do I talk to my kids after school or when they are ready to come home from a soccer practice or any of those kinds of things, if that is broken down, what can we rely on and what what can we put into place to make um, make that happen. One of the things we know is that after an incident happens in a community that um, there are a lot of official channels that are using cell towers and radios and all of those kinds of things. And sometimes it's harder to get uh, personal use of, you know, cell cell calls, uh, cell phone calls won't go through because the systems are busy. The other thing we know is, especially if it was a bombing and there's that threat of a secondary device or a secondary incident, um, they're often turning off the cell towers periodically. Um, 
it, actually it's turning them off for the most part and then turning them on periodically because what we know is that cell phones are used to detonate bombs. And so, so all of that means that it's going to be very hard for me to get a message or a phone call to my children or to my uh, elderly parents, or to even my my loved uh, significant other, or my, my spouse, or whoever it is. And so creating different ways to communicate. Um, and from a personal uh, perspective, my um, sister was um, lived just north of New York City during 9-11, and her cell service between herself and her three children and her husband was completely cut off for about five days. Um, and so all of that communication um, was coming through me. I lived on the other side of New York State. So they were all able to call me over there or text me over there, um, but not able to text each other when they were, uh, you know, a few streets away. So there was a lot of back and forth. We did not know that prior to 9-11 that that was going to happen. We were very quickly able to implement it once that happened so that everybody knew that everybody was safe and where people were and all of that kind of stuff. Um, that's one example of how to do it, but coming up with a communication plan. The other thing to uh, plan is uh, child contingency plans or elderly contingency plans. If I cannot pick up my child at school because a bomb went off in between my house and the school and I can't get there, what's going to happen to my children? What are the, who else can go pick up my children? What are the plans? How can we set this up? And it may not be that I can right now identify who I know who would be on the same side of the bomb as my children. But what I can do is set up things like code words um, that if I have young children and someone comes to pick them up at school who is not me and is not their normal person, but has a specific code, says a specific thing to my children, they know that I sent them. To, to pick them up and that something happened and that I can't be there. So coming up with contingency plans like that for children, um, for elderly um, family members who may be in elderly care or nursing homes and you're just trying to, to get information about them, those kinds of things. Um, so as a person, those are the kinds of things that I would do. Um, Karina, do you wanna talk about um, either that or that and sort of as a professional responder, what we can put into place? Sure, I think, you know, I would echo what you just said about communication being super important and having alternatives because just recently, my son went through Hurricane Ida and completely lost cell communication for about five days as well. So it was really important to have a backup plan. Um, I think on scene, you know, communication is equally important, but it's so important to have someone like a buddy to communicate with. You know, if you identify somebody on scene that you're working with who can recognize signs that you may not realize you're you're giving off and vice versa, you can help each other sort of spot when the other is maybe having a bit of a rough time. Um, you know, we, we like to talk about resilience and building resilience before you deploy because you know you're going to be in an austere environment. You know you're going to have challenges associated with, you know, of a host of factors. You know, with COVID, it would be PPE. In some cases, it's language barriers. In some cases, it's just hearing traumatic experiences or seeing trauma repeatedly day in, day out. So I think, you know, for some people, it's it, it can just be really helpful to even just list 
how you feel like you might react or how you react to these sorts of triggers and then um, kind of and come up with a list of things you can do when you feel yourself reacting to those triggers. What's, ha- what's helped you in the past? What do you like to do to help you relax? When you have control, how do you feel? When you feel like you don't have control, how do you feel? What can you avoid when you're on these, these assignments? Um, and then, you know, your, your typical stress management tips that we hear over and over again, it's so important for us to actually pay attention and, and, and act on them. Don't work more than 12 hours at a time. Limit your exposure to the news. It is okay to say no when you're not comfortable or when you just are exhausted and, and need a break. And there's, you know, know what kind of food is healthy and take healthy snacks with you and remember to drink, drink water, not drink, drink water, (laughs) drink, hydrate, stay hydrated because, you know, you can't pour from an empty cup. That's one of my all time favorite sayings. Um, So, you know, we, we, some, some of us refer to this as as like a behavioral health PPE or behavioral health self-care plans, but whatever you call it, I think it's so important to have it in place before you're deployed, before you respond. And I would piggyback on there to say that some of the things you talked about are things that organizations can put into place if they're thinking about things ahead of time. Um, Things like the 12-hour shifts, things like making sure that you are leaving when you're supposed to be leaving, Um, and, and doing that from a leadership position all the way down. What we know is if leaders say you can only work 12 hours and then work for 72 hours, that what people know and expect of themselves is that they're going to also work 72 hours and that that's fine. Well, because the, you know, police chief did it or the, you know, whoever did it. So I think also the planning piece gives organizations the opportunity to put some of that stuff into a written plan that, that there will be you know, no longer than 12 hour shifts, that there will be um, a a meeting, like a, a briefing of the people coming in so that the people who are leaving can, can give information. Um, and all of those things you were talking about that are sort of stress inoculation related in terms of, let's think about what you might expect out there. Those can be institutionalized by an organization. Let's have these conversations in these meetings um, as people People are stepping into these really challenging situations so that that we as an organization are setting people up as well as possible to be effective and to to be good at what they do and be what we need them as an organization to be. Once again, virtual high five because, you know, it starts at the top and and if the top is modeling healthy behavior, so will all the other levels. Absolutely. Great information. Thank you both so much. So let's move, keep moving forward. So where do we go from here and what are the next steps? Uh, what you'll find on this page where you found the podcast is a list of resources. And I just want to touch on uh, a program that I'm involved in, and then I'll ask uh, Tara and Karina to do the same. So you'll see a link for the Office for Victims of Crime Training and Technical Assistance Center's mass violence webpage. And this is where you'll find all sorts of information on planning, how to request technical assistance for your planning efforts. It's free. I'll just say that our services are free. Um, We'll have our library of webinars on the webpage and also resources for planning, responding and recovering from a mass violence incident. Tara and Karina, do you want to talk about your resources? 
Sure, I will go next. Um, so my uh, program is, um, we refer to it as ICPTTA, um, and it's really, um, the full name is Improving Community Preparedness to Assist Victims of Mass Violence and Domestic Terrorism, and it's a training and technical assistance program. So I am um, also funded by the Office for Victims of Crime like Diane, and so our services are free, and we focus solely on planning for mass violence and domestic terrorism and bringing together um, the, the victim service piece and the emergency management first responder piece, um, the operations with the victim care, and really helping to knit those together into a, um, a very uh, cohesive plan. Um, a couple of our, our really um, I'm really excited about these resources. One, we have an exercise guide that will help you take an exercise that you already have planned in your community, an active shooter exercise, a bombing exercise, any of those kinds of things, and um, tack on victim care components, um, all the stuff that we have been talking about, the, the Family and Friends Reception Notification Center, the Family Assistance Center, um, the Long-Term Resiliency Center. So really looking at tacking that on with injects and, and a scenario that will take you out there um, connecting uh, core capabilities that that emergency managers need to exercise. All of that is done in this guide. The other thing that we have um, coming out is um, a template for an annex, a mass violence response annex. So we will, um, it's going to be available on the website and you can walk yourself through a process of having the conversations you need and identifying um, all of the components that you need and then putting them into a plan. You can also contact us and we have consultants who will work with you in your community to um, go through that process to, um, to get you a plan. We can actually even write the plan. Uh, the other thing I will say before I pass it to Karina is that um, OVC TTAC, Diane's program and my program, we work very closely together. And one of the things that you will find is we both do planning work, um, but we will often talk to each other about which program is the best fit when someone calls in. And so um, it may sound like we do things that are opposed to each other, but we're actually very cooperative in the process. So, um, so call either one of us and you'll get both of us basically. So Karina. Thanks. I represent Asper Tracy, and that is brought to you by the United States Department of Health and Human Services. ASPER is actually an acronym for the Office of the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response, and TRACY is an acronym for Technical Resources Assistance Center and Information Exchange, so it's T-R-A-C-I-E. We were developed to meet information and technical assistance needs of a variety of stakeholders, including healthcare coalitions, healthcare entities, providers, emergency managers, um, basically anyone who works in disaster medicine, healthcare system preparedness, and public health emergency preparedness. Uh, we kind of run the gamut. I, I like to say we cover from A to Z, access and functional needs to Zika. We've got a bunch of topic collections that are basically annotated bibliographies. And we do have a mass violence resources page. On that, you can find plans, exercises, tools, templates. And we also have a set of no-notice incident tip sheets that um, are a, a collection of lessons learned from a variety of mass casualty incidents, but really focus mostly on the Las Vegas incident. 
And we also have a disaster behavioral health resource page that includes similar resources, um, but also some modules for organizational and healthcare work or resilience. Thanks. Thanks, Karina. And my thanks to you and Tara for sharing your insights and experience with everyone today. Thank you for listening to the podcast, to the folks out there. I encourage you to check out the resources on this page and let us know how we can help you. Have a great day.